most people, they have to unlearn being quick to respond to the position to try to facilitate a concession. And they need to learn how to better understand what is causing the party to take the position because it's that information that creates a lot of room for creativity and better deals can get done at that level than just fighting about who's right and who's wrong at the positional level. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. John Lowry, a recognized authority on negotiation through his experience as a lawyer, consultant, entrepreneur, and coach and university administrator. His result-focused, systematic approach to negotiation has been successfully implemented by thousands of professionals across the globe. He teaches negotiation at the top-ranked Strauss Institute for Dispute Resolution. He also serves as the president of the Lowry Group, where he provides negotiation training, coaching for government, major insurance companies, health cares, and other businesses. Now, I found John's book absolutely fascinating. Negotiation Made Simple was a great read, super practical, and I could put the tips into action immediately. I instantly wanted to get him on the show to share his lessons and what needs to be unlearned about negotiation, something that is often seen straight away as an adversarial or competitive or zero-sum approach. John's insights are actionable, they're simple, and they're powerful. So let's hear how he got started on his own journey to become the negotiation coach. My journey has been very unconventional in terms of how I've gotten to this place. A career coach would be like, you're an absolute mess. You need to kind of follow the straight and narrow. You zigzag all over the place. And I think part of that is following passion. Part of that is wanting to start things new and wanting to add value and rethink things. If you're passionate about that and you want to do those kind of things, there's not just a conventional career path to follow that leads you in doing that. So some moments along the way there, though, that really stood out, there are a couple. One is I always wanted to be a lawyer. My father was a law professor, and I always gave him a hard time because I would joke with him that he was never a real lawyer because he never practiced. He was an academic and I was like, how on earth do you call yourself a lawyer when you've never been in the courtroom and you've never taken a deposition and all these things? So I wanted to be an attorney growing up and did all of those things and had that opportunity and had a wonderful legal career. But the thing that I realized in my legal career was that I just negotiated all day, every day. That's literally what I did whether it was trying to get a hearing or dealing with plaintiff's counsel and trying to come up with a deal on scheduling or trying to settle the case or working with the client on trying to get them to a place to where they were willing to settle. It was just all day, every day negotiation. And I got to a point to where I realized that this was an extremely valuable skill set, but the negotiation course that I took in law school, it wasn't quite sufficient in terms of preparing me for all the negotiations and the different dynamics that I would face as an attorney. So the other thing I realized is the litigation process, it's costly, it's expensive, 
No one really likes it. The lawyers do quite well as a result of it, but the litigants, it's painful for them. They don't like giving depositions. They don't like going to trial. There's no business that has it in their strategic plan that they want to be a named party in a Supreme Court case in the next year. It's just not a process that is great. And so what I realized is in the world that I was working, which was primarily medical malpractice and healthcare litigation, 98% of the cases settled. So it was negotiation that would resolve 98% of the cases. That's an amazing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so I set out and said, well, what if I was a resource to people in settling 98% of the cases? What if I developed an expertise in this process that is used to resolve so many lawsuits, not only here in the United States, but globally as well, develop that expertise? Because that process I loved, because for me, that was the process that mattered, because that was the process that disposed of the case. That was the process that brought healing to yeah. the, the injured party. That was the process that brought peace. For me, that's what mattered was that moment and trying to be useful and helpful in that moment. And so I began to do a lot of training, trained lots of lawyers, lots of healthcare practitioners, worked with folks to try to give them this skill set so that it could be employed earlier in the process and be better for everybody. Help that business deal with that piece of litigation in a more efficient way. Help that party get to a resolution quicker so that they can move on with their lives. All of those kinds of things. And what I learned was in the context of conflict management, where I started this pursuit of negotiation and an expertise in negotiation, most of the problems started as human problems. Then they became legal problems. And then the really sophisticated negotiators, they got them resolved as human problems again. And the litigation process didn't allow for the human element to come back in. It was only the negotiation process that allowed for that. Because all a jury can do is give money. And money is not always a healing thing. It resolves the financial problem, but it doesn't resolve the emotional problem. Or it doesn't restore the relationship. Or it doesn't do some of these things that I believe are actually important not only in the business world, but then just in the world at large. That's super, John. One of the things that sort of strikes me as well when I meet people who are great at this, it's evident straight away just even listening to you, how you think and how you talk about this. You think about not just financial or adversarial, you're thinking about people, you're thinking about emotional healing, you're thinking about resolution that's satisfactory as best it can be from a holistic point of view. So many people, myself included, I've had to learn a lot about how to negotiate, especially in the last couple of years, working on this venture studio, building companies, granting equity for people, making them feel like there's a fair deal on the table or whatever way they want to think of it. But instantly when people hear this word negotiation, I feel like their mind jumps straight to adversarial, zero-sum game, I win, you lose. Oh, I was out-negotiated. It drives this sort of, often like I would consider negative or our anxiety in a lot of people. End of the year at the moment, people are thinking I've got to renegotiate my salary or that pay increase I want, the promotion I want, like very simple things. And 
they often feel like they're going into those rooms at a disadvantage or whatever it might be. Just even hearing you talk about one of your unlearning moments, thinking about the human side, then it sounds contractual side, and then we don't go back to the human side to be resolved. That's a massive unlearning moment, just to even hear you talk about that. What are some of the other ones that struck you as you've gone through this process yourself? Maybe it might be counterintuitive to say the, the beginner who's learning about negotiation for the first time or maybe has some of those assumptions that it's all negative, it's a zero sum. Like, What were some of the aha moments for you as you went through that process? Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting, there's actually a study that comes out of the Harvard Business School that looked at businesses that were making decisions. And these were decisions about money. These were investment decisions about do we invest or not invest? What they did was they followed the teams around that were making those decisions. They attached researchers and graduate students to those teams. And as the team went through the decision-making process, the team made the decision to either make the investment or not make the investment. And then the Harvard researcher jumped in and said, okay, tell us why. What were the triggers that caused you to do the deal or not do the deal? And what the Harvard researchers found was about 30% of those decisions were made based upon some form of reason, logic, or financial analysis. Now, you hear that number and you go, okay, that would be how I think most of those decisions get made, but only 30% of them were made that way. And so it didn't beg the question of what were the other 70% of those decisions based upon? What they found was it was actually emotion. And so they dug a little deeper. They tried to understand more the emotional trigger that prompted that decision to do the deal or not do the deal. And what they found was that the emotional trigger actually had to do with ego. It wasn't about what the other side felt about or what you or this side felt about the other side. It was as they contemplated doing business with the other side, how did that make them feel about themselves? I love this example and I love this piece of research because I think it illustrates something that requires some unlearning. And that is, is that as we're doing business, the other side and us too, that we're gonna make decisions based upon reason, logic, and analysis. And the reality is, A lot of it comes down to, do we like the other person or not? And the number one thing that will dictate whether we like the other person or not is how much they like us. I think this is transformative in terms of working with sales teams, which I do a lot, and rethink all of your presentations. It's not about what they think about you. It's about what you do for them in their emotional state. Do you solve for their fear? Do you feed their ego? Do you connect with the uncertainties that they're trying to solve for? The really good sales folks, they understand that they're trying to put their product in the middle of the problem that the client is trying to solve for. And that problem, and this is the big learning or unlearning, That problem is usually much more dynamic, much more human, much more personal than what you might think. That's a really kind of interesting 
thing that I've learned in terms of studying this and work really hard in terms of sharing with people kind of around the world that are doing business and thinking about how to get deals done. That's the magic of how to get deals done. Yeah. Instantly, as you're telling these stories, my mind is just going bang, 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 ticking over about all the situations that went sour that I was in. It worked out great, but sometimes it wasn't clear why. As you say, like this ability to connect with people at an emotional level where you're likable to one another. One of the things we've learned a lot in the studio is we have to work with people who we feel like there's a camaraderie with, that it's a relationship built on helping one another, working together, recognizing differences, whatever it might be. We always try to work hard to park the egos. And believe me, we have some massive egos in this studio, but we're called Nobody Studios because we're trying to leave the ego at the door. It's lovely to hear you put a language around this and, again, help me to start to think about that. Now, this book you've written, Negotiation Made Simple, super book. It's top Amazon charts. Highly recommend everybody go grab the book, read it over the holidays. But for you, what do you think are some of the like top sort of themes people need to unlearn about negotiation? When you think of it at a corporate level or within companies, what are some of the first sort of counterintuitive things you have to help people go when they come into the workshop? They've read the book and they're like, oh, this is a fascinating view about getting to the human connection side of creating a relationship to get to a resolution rather than just thinking about, oh, this is a dollars and cents, zero in some game. Like we're just battling every dotted I and cross on the T here. So help people understand a little bit about what are some of those leaps they need to start to think about and make as they go into learning more about negotiation. Sure, let me share a couple that are in the book. But negotiation is a very counterintuitive process. There's a lot of unlearning that has to happen to become a more sophisticated negotiator. The first thing that I think is really interesting for people is to understand that while we all love the idea of win-win, and we love the notion of we're going to give each other a hug at the end of this, the reality is that is not necessarily where all negotiations are going to end or even should end. I have this debate with some of my colleagues at Pepperdine at the Strauss Institute who have been concerned about the fact that I teach competitive negotiation. They're like, well, is that making the world a better place? I said, well, I don't know. All I know is that I'm talking to a bunch of lawyers or aspiring lawyers in terms of law students, and they better know how to compete in the negotiation process because they're going to come up against other lawyers that are ready to compete. I'm not sure if it makes the world a better place or not, but it is reality. They have to be ready for it. But the irony of this and what is amazingly counterintuitive is competition is actually cooperative in some circumstances. For example, if we're trying to put a deal together and you make an offer and say, okay, John, here's the deal. I'm going to sell you the widgets and the total cost for all of the units is $100,000. And I say, okay, that's great, Barry. Super cooperative in terms of my response, but how do you feel? 
in terms of me reacting that quickly, that fast with such an easy answer. It probably creates a little doubt. Yeah, Yeah. I feel like, hang on. Did I I go over? Did I go under? Like, there's very little feedback there other than just a, yes, that actually makes me nervous sometimes, I have to say. It makes you nervous. And so notice there, me being cooperative actually doesn't accomplish what you're trying to accomplish with it. It does just the opposite. The other side is like, whoa, I missed something or... Yeah, there's uncertainty or yeah, I put you in a really tough position because you got to go back to your boss and say, yeah, I got the deal done. They're like, how'd it go? Well, I said 100,000 and they said yes. And the first answer was like, well, why didn't you ask for more? There's some ritual to this. The irony of it is by saying, yeah, Barry, I don't know if I can do 100,000, but listen, if you can give me 20% off, I think we can do a deal. And you say, no, no, no way, John. I'm not giving you 20% off, but you know, I'll give you a five. I'm like, eh, that's not going to do it. But 15, you're like, all right, fine. Let's meet in the middle. Let's do the deal for 10% off. Notice you actually feel better about that, even though you sold it for less because you're able to go back and say, oh man, John, that guy, he wanted 20%. We went back and forth. We got it for 10. We got the deal done. Everyone's happy. And that is really kind of counterintuitive. On the flip side of that, when we're thinking about a more cooperative approach, here's the thing that I think is probably one of the biggest things. There's a whole part in my book called transitioning from positions. Negotiation often starts with people taking positions. Whatever the issue is, they're going to take positions. And what follows in a very just conventional process is people are going to try to convince the other side that their position is right and the other side's position is wrong. And they're going to do all sorts of things to try to gain leverage for their position. And they're doing that in an effort to try to generate compromise on the positions and get to a place to where, just like I described in that little silly example, how we compromise to a place to where we're both at least satisfied. The interesting thing, though, is it's really not about the position. The people that don't take the bait in terms of presenting the counter argument or sharing the new information, but the people who say, okay, that's your position, that's fine. But they begin asking questions about understanding why that person is taking that position and what is it that's causing that person to taking that position. It's really simple to do. It's just asking some open-ended questions. Help me understand. How'd you get there? What is it about such and such? And what you're going to learn are these things called interests. That's kind of common language in negotiation. But what the interests are is these are those intangible, but very real things. These are the egos, the fears, the values, the goals, the motives. These are the things that are really driving the people to take that position. It is not about the position. It's about getting to those things. Most people, they have to unlearn being quick to respond to the position to try to facilitate a concession And they need to learn how to better understand what is causing the party to take the position because it's that information that creates a lot of room for creativity and better deals can get done at that level than just fighting about who's right and who's wrong 
at the positional level. Super insights. And you're giving me a language now to think about this. We're trying to understand or seeking to understand or prompting ways for more information to come out. That is always helpful to build context around where people are at. Simple example, when you're building a product and you show it to a customer and they go, no, I don't want to buy it. You're like, okay, unless you ask them why, you're never going to learn a little bit more about what matters to them. Just like when you're describing here, like when you're trying to negotiate with somebody and you make an offer to them and they respond, unless you ask these questions to sort of understand what's driving your response, you're sort of missing out on a richness of information that's going to help you understand them and get to a better place. It's just lovely to hear you talk about these in sort of very simple yet actionable terms that I could see myself the next time I'm sitting down with someone, whether it's to negotiate a pay deal or equity in the business or whatever it might be, already you're reinforcing a behavior I need to have of asking more questions to understand their position or their interests. As you say, the motivator is really good. What are some of your favorite questions to ask people to understand their position more? And is there specific ones that are more sensitive than others? You talked about the ego being a huge trigger. Is there areas where you would say, be careful when you try to pry into or try to learn more because that can actually trigger a fast response to negativity, if you will, where a deal could never get done? Yeah, let me share a few tactical ideas. First thing is use open-ended questions. So you want to create a safe environment for them to share information. Especially in adversarial negotiations, it could take a little bit of time because you literally have to reset that whole dynamic to get them to a place to where they're willing to share anything at any level of vulnerability because it's been adversarial. Those particular situations, taking control of the process and saying, okay, let's just hit pause for just a second. We're having a tough time finding a place where we can make this work. Obviously, tensions are high. Let's just have a different conversation for a minute. Even in the most challenging, adversarial, combative kind of environments, that will change just the nature of things of just saying, let's go in a different direction for just a second. And make no promises that there's anything brilliant at the end of this road. Just say, will you go with me? Oftentimes people will say, okay, whatever, like, what do you have in mind? And then there is, it just starts with a question and it's an open-ended question. And so sometimes it's, help me understand what you're trying to accomplish because maybe I can help you with that. Or tell me more about this. If there's something that they're kind of latched onto, like you seem kind of caught up with this, just tell me more about that. I'd be interested in kind of hearing. The idea is to kind of get them talking. You do have to be very careful of using the word why. Because even though that's the information that you want, if I say, why are you wearing a brown shirt, Barry? There is a sense of, I've got to defend my decision. Yeah, right away. Yeah, even though you said that. Yeah, I felt that straight away. I was like- You felt it straight away, right? Yeah, right. You've got to honor them when you get down to this place where we're talking about the interest. Those interests, they have to be honored. If you challenge their interest, then you're in real trouble in terms of being able to get it done because now it's personal. And so instead, it's really important to honor those interests. And what I find that's so fascinating, and if we had time, I'd tell you story after story from the business world about where this has happened, is once you get down there, 
the interests almost always don't conflict. There is the opportunity for alignment around the interests. And once you get to that place to where you can get that on the table in terms of talking about the interest of both sides, all of a sudden, very difficult deals that are an absolute, been a challenge to put together, may have taken years, they get done in hours because it's easy to solve for those things. That's the moment where you can become very powerful as a negotiator and that becomes kind of the magic if you can get them sharing that with you and then join them in a brainstorming and creativity process to try to solve for their interest. Sometimes you never have to respond to the position. Such a great insight. Again, you're giving me a framework and a language to think about where I got to resolutions with folks or conclusions. It's always felt like we were working on each other's problems together. Although I might have not done or made a choice that I would have wanted to, the fact that we solved, I helped solve an interest for them, they helped solve an interest for me, that actually what nets out in a, what feels like a satisfactory resolution or conclusion. It's really nice to hear you, again, give a language to that because it's hard. But also it's very rewarding when you feel like you had a difficult, you were facing climbing a mountain and figuring out how to make something work for yourself and the other party, if possible. It's a great way to get to this point of like understanding each other's fundamental interests and how you can work on those together is fascinating way to get there. So looking ahead then for negotiation, you mentioned decisions. I think decisions are a negotiation. It feels like everything's a negotiation sometimes. Where do you see this sort of field going? You're out there, you're teaching people about it. You're working with such a broad remit of folks from salespeople to lawyers, to healthcare practitioners, to every person that's going to pick up this book in an airport is going to be interested about how can I get better at this? So what are some of the sort of interesting things you're starting to see emerging in the years ahead about this skill and how it might be used? One of the things about negotiation that's kind of interesting is it has stood the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's part of the human experience. I don't think it will ever not be a part of the human experience. Right on. So I think it's here to stay. I don't think there's technology that's going to replace it and make it go away or anything like that. There's certainly things that will impact. But the two biggest things that I think will impact the field of negotiation, the first is neuroscience. I think as we better understand how the brain works and how we make decisions based on the emotional triggers and things like that, that's going to provide a lot of insights in terms of how you put deals together, how you help people get to a place to where they can say yes. As more understanding happens, not only about psychology, but about physiology in terms of our minds and how they work. That's going to impact this field substantially as neuroscience continues to expand. And then there is the AI, artificial intelligence kind of stuff. I think there's going to be some impact in terms of how negotiations are done based upon artificial intelligence. But people have asked me, and I don't think that it just replaces negotiation because I don't think artificial intelligence 
is going to get to the place to where it can diagnose within each person and all the complexity that goes into each person, how they make a decision to do a deal or not do a deal. It will make some progress. It will impact some things, but I don't think it's going to make negotiation go away. I actually got fired from a opportunity that I was pursuing with a large company that called me up one day and said, John, you're a victim of technology. We've just acquired a new software and the new software is going to give us the value that we need. Our people are just going to go take those values and present them to the other side. And that's what's going to be the deal. I asked the question, I said, well, okay, you're going to have an understanding of the substantive right answer, but you still have to get the other side to that right answer. And just telling them that it's objective as a result of your software program, that's going to be the question. (laughs) Sure enough, they called back and said, no, 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 we still want to do some more negotiation training because the other side not agreeing to what our software says should be the right answer. And I think you're going to see some more of that go on where people are going to be like, oh, now we got the right answer. And so it will impact the substantive side of negotiation, but then they'll also always be the process side that I think it's going to have a harder time disrupting. Yeah, no, that absolutely resonates. We've had some great people on who are various different technology leaders, and the message is always the same. It's humans and technology. It's not an R. It's not one substituting for another. The machines can help us give us insights, crunch data, understand patterns that our brain just can't process from a arithmetic point of view. And any AI person we've had on the show, like in world leaders on this, the thing they're most scared about is us totally deferring our answers to the machines because they're still programmed by humans. They're still biased, programmed in. It's still someone's decision-making rubric that is codified into these machines. If they're not monitored, if there's not boundary conditions set around them, that's where most people get most nervous about. And it's classic patterns. The famous example is people getting judgments on being granted for mortgages. Machines look at a broad look at data to evaluate if someone is a good candidate to be likely to repay their mortgage, but there's proxy information that biases it. And postal code is a classic one where your postal code, you might be from a low socioeconomic area or a certain community to live in that area and you're instantly failed. But the people will say, but our model negotiated and made the decision on its own, but there's biases baked into the model. Sure. So it's fascinating. Yeah. Listen, John, it's been amazing to have you on the show. Such a great introduction to this. There's so much more to go, but so great picture and yet tactical steps where people can take away and start experimenting, if you will, with like how to do negotiation. Where do you recommend I start? Do I sit down with my wife and try and see if I can have a burger? for dinner or do I have to have a salad? Like, how do I negotiate that one? Where do you recommend people start to practice? Well, I think you're onto something there because the reality is negotiation is both a personal and a professional skill. What I found is that the people that bring strategy and careful thinking to the table in their personal lives, and even in those kind of dynamics to where you're deciding on where to go for dinner, Those folks become more skillful more quickly and then can apply that into their professional lives. You know, I've got teenagers at this stage of life. I'm negotiating all day long. So as a result of that, 
the better I can be in terms of negotiating in my personal life, the better equipped I'm going to be to negotiate in my professional life as well. I appreciate the fact you kind of brought that up right here at the end in terms of thinking about all of the different dynamics in which we will use this skill. I tell people all the time when I go do training, I say, you know, I want to be very bold here in saying, I want you to be a better salesperson, or I want you to be a better executive, or I want you to be a better fill in the blank. But then I also say, I also want you to be a better parent. And I want you to be a better spouse. And I want you to be a better community leader and fill in the blank all the different roles we have in life because negotiation is going to be what leads us to success in all of those different roles. Right on. Love it, John. Well, look, highly recommend everybody get out there. Negotiation Made Simple. It's a fantastic book. Everyone go out there and get it and then get more exposed to a lot of the great work that you're sharing, John. Is there anywhere you'd encourage people to go find out more and learn? and have an opportunity to even work with you. Absolutely. So lowrygroup.net, L-O-W-R-Y group.net. That's our website. There's all the information there, information about the book, ways to contact us. It's a great joy for us to have the opportunity to go work with people, to hear stories about people that take these skills into their worlds. And as a result, they're able to do more of what they're passionate and what they feel called to do. That's the win for me. So we'd love to engage with people and help people in any way that we can. We want the good people to win and the people that are doing good things, we want them to be successful. And I hope that we can add just a little bit of value in terms of the process that will need to be managed well in terms of spreading that goodness and generating that success. Right on, John. Doing good work. Thank you very much and great to have you on the show. Thank you, Barry. This has been great fun. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed, and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years, and who knows how many beyond that. So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.